Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. So it may not uh, come as a surprise to any who have been here at Mosaic for any amount of time. Uh, But if this is your first time here and you've never met me before, um, I'm what you might call a bit of a mm, Star Wars geek, nerd, maybe, something along those lines. Um, But as a Star Wars fan, I will say, a proud fanboy of Star Wars, if you talk to myself or anybody else who is in the same vein, not all Star Wars movies are unfortunately created equal. Because as somebody who grew up as a child in the 80s, the original trilogy holds a great place in my heart. And I just saw Grace is wearing a Star Wars shirt. So like, that just made me excited. Uh, so the original Star Wars trilogy has this place in my heart. I adore it. But the prequel trilogy that came out in the late 90s and early 2000, I have more of a tepid love-hate relationship with that series. And for a lot of Star Wars fans, myself included, it's not because necessarily that the content of the movies was off. It had the Jedis, the space battles, all the different things that you wanted. But for a lot of uh, Star Wars fans, it was the fact that the story itself felt very clunky and almost disjointed. Primarily, that was because there was these large leaps forward in the timeline between the movies. And so diehard Star Wars fans were frustrated because there were so many of their just nerdy questions that remained unanswered and unexplored. And so these large gaps in time between the movies left them scratching their heads, trying to keep track of what characters were doing what and why were these holes in the plot line. Of course, to make matters worse, there was also Jar Jar Binks, which (laughs) didn't help either. Thanks a lot, George Lucas. But for our audience, for our modern audience today, and we come to the Daniel uh, chapter 5, many of us here would probably say that we're largely unfamiliar with Babylonian ancient history. And so when we get to Daniel chapter 5, it can seem like that Daniel 5 suffers from some of the same problems that the prequels suffered from as well. Largely because there exists a large gap in between the closing verses of Daniel chapter 4 and the opening verses of Daniel chapter 5. In fact, most historians and theologians will tell you that there is a 20 to 30 year gap between these two chapters. And for those of us who have been reading Daniel for the last few weeks, or perhaps if you've read Daniel in the past, when you get to Daniel 5, It can lead you to start scratching your head and trying to make sense of what's happening in the story. Some of the characters who perhaps you've become familiar with, or maybe at the very least you've learned how to finally pronounce their name, have suddenly changed and are gone without a trace. And in their stead, a new and unknown nations and kings are rising to power. Thus, like the original Star Wars prequels, Daniel 5 can feel clunky and disjointed. But I can tell you this, 
Thankfully, despite this large gap in Daniel's historical records, you won't find Jar Jar Binks anywhere in the Bible. But when we arrive at Daniel 5, we may be surprised to find that Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king of Babylon. And so how did we get to this point in our story? What happened to good old Neb? For answers, we need to turn our attention to an ancient Chaldean historian by the name of Baros. And Baros helps to spill the tea on what's happened in between these two chapters. His writings tell us that Nebuchadnezzar died after a 43-year reign as the king of Babylon. And his death resulted in a power vacuum that saw a succession of different kings trying to assert their authority and claim to the crown at Babylon. There was a number of kings that came and rose into power, but one in particular kind of stood out to me. His name was Evil Merodach. Now, it, it made me laugh just because, like, think, imagine having that dude as your president. Like, it doesn't necessarily inspire confidence when you hear Evil Merodach is my president, right? Like, who's your president? Evil Merodach. He's really a good guy. Just doesn't, uh, doesn't inspire confidence. But the truth is, after all these years of political turmoil and the turnover, the crown finally came to rest on the head of a gentleman by the name of Nabonidus in 556 B.C. And as a result, he made his son, Belshazzar, who we read about this morning, the co-regent of the kingdom of Babylon. And he did this so that Belshazzar could oversee his affairs in the kingdom of Babylon why Nabonidus was abroad waging war against the rising threat of the Medo-Persian army that was attempting to take over the world at that time. And so if you ever think that American politics are messy, read the Bible for a few pages in the Old Testament, and it can put things into perspective for you very quickly. So after all that now, we're finally brought back to the opening verse in Daniel chapter 5, and it says this, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, when we get to this verse, we may be tempted to think, Belshazzar sounds like a pretty cool dude, right? Like he's throwing a party for a thousand of his best friends. And certainly, he can't be any worse than that evil Merodach guy. But the problem is, is that there's information that Daniel omits from his record that I think will sway our opinion of Belshazzar in this moment. You see, according to many historians, during the writing of Daniel chapter 5, Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, who had gone out to war against the Medo-Persian army, had been captured. And that same army that had captured his father was now gathering like vultures around the city, with their soldiers poking and prodding the different parts of the wall, looking for weaknesses that they could find so that they could invade and sack the city of Babylon. And so let me just be clear in this moment what's happening. Belshazzar's dad has been captured and kidnapped. A bloodthirsty invasion force is waiting outside the gates of Babylon to destroy the city. And Belshazzar, in all his wisdom and might, decides that it's a good time to throw a party. Not exactly a classy move by Belshazzar. And so to make matters worse, not only does Belshazzar have terrible party planning sense, this is not a dude that you want to ask to plan your birthday party, 
but he's also determined to mock the holy God of the universe in the process. Because in Daniel chapter 2, we learn this, that while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple of Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And this is something that we call in biblical terms sacrilege. And that's not necessarily a term that we use in our everyday vernacular anymore, but it means this. It's taking something that is holy and mixing it with something that is profane or secular. And so that is exactly what Belshazzar is doing in this moment. He's taking the holy vessels from God's temple and mixing them in his party to get drunk and worship false gods. And of course, it's this point in the story, many of us have an idea of what happens. We know how this story goes because many of us heard this in Sunday school growing up. A mysterious floating hand begins to appear above the king and begins to write a cryptic message on the wall above him. Understandably, when Belshazzar sees this hand, he's appropriately freaked out. In fact, the Bible says that his knees literally start knocking when he sees this hand. And I don't know about you, but again, as a child of the 80s, thinking about that, all I could think about was Sleepy Hollow and Ichabod Crane being chased down by the Headless Horseman and his horse's knees knocking when they were running. (laughs) That's where my mind goes when I read the Bible. So welcome to Nick Jankowski's head. But of course, I can't blame him, right? If I was at a party and I saw a hand writing on the wall, I would be terrified as well. And not only that, I probably would never drink another ounce of alcohol for the rest of my life. I would be done. And so Belshazzar, seeing this hand and this message above him, he calls all his pagan mystics in and says, you need to tell me what this means, and not one of them can raise to the occasion. And so once again, as we've seen, as we've been studying Daniel, the book of Daniel, Daniel is called into the king's court, and he's told to explain the message. And what I find fascinating about this text I mean, aside from obviously the floating hand, the bloodthirsty army, and the power-hungry king, is the actual sin for which Belshazzar is being indicted by God. Because it's tempting in this moment as we read this portion of Daniel to think that it was the sacrilege that Belshazzar committed that was enough to levy the judgment of God against him. But as we're about to see And as we see throughout the entirety of Scripture, that God was less concerned about the outward actions of a man and more concerned about the inward motivations of his heart. And so let's read what what Daniel has to say here. In fact, you could say that he gets right to the heart of the issue for Belshazzar. He says, beginning in verse 18, Your majesty... The Most High God, your father, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Let me just pause there for a second because I'd want to alleviate any confusion for anybody. I said earlier that Nabonidus was Belshazzar's father, and that is true. He was his biological father. However, here in Daniel 5, when he's referring to Nebuchadnezzar as his father, he means so that Nebuchadnezzar was a procession of kings that went before him. He was his Uh, father by kingship, not by biological means. So that is what he means when he's talking about his father being Nebuchadnezzar. So he says, your majesty, 
The Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty, greatness, and glory in splendor. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from the royal throne and stripped of glory until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the nations of the earth. But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. And here's the amazing thing about this text is that Belshazzar, it would seem, did not have the proverbial apple fall too far from the family tree. Just as Nebuchadnezzar had struggled with this issue of pride, so too we see Belshazzar wrestling with that same issue. To quote Ron Burgundy, both men saw themselves as kind of a big deal. They were both thinking, I matter, my, what my life matters, I have power in this moment. And so if you're like me, you might be wondering at this point in the story, why is all the bluster, why all the drama from God over one man's ego? Because I think all of us in this moment can probably agree that hanging around people who are prideful, it's not fun. But is it really Belshazzar's pride commensurate with the judgment and destruction of an entire city? Is that really what God is talking about here? Maybe if Belshazzar had been a mass murderer, maybe if he had been a child abuser, maybe if he had just said, I really like to kick puppies for fun, then maybe we could see God say that same thing. But pride? Really? All this over pride, God? In in our human understanding of sins, we tend to have a hierarchy of what sins are really bad and what sins are not so bad. And pride, for a lot of us, is one of those sins that tends to rank towards the bottom of that list, if it even makes the list at all. And this discrepancy between our view of pride and God's view of pride is rooted in our own sin and brokenness. Because here's the truth, church. As human beings, when God spoke us into creation, when he knit us together in our mother's wombs, he did so with the desire to boast. We might call it in church to worship, but he gave us the desire to boast of something great. And we see throughout the story of the Bible over and over again that God desired and intended that he himself would be the fulfillment of that in our lives, that we were to lavish our praise and our boasting upon God and God alone. But the moment that sin enters the world, the moment that sin comes into the Garden of Eden like a flood, from that very moment forward, we see that as human beings, we want to seek out and celebrate and worship our creations instead of the creator. We want to worship what we've made and not the one who's made us. This was true in Belshazzar's day. His false sense of pride led him to believe that he was secure behind the Babylonian walls. There was no way that this army could come in and get him. He was wrong. And this is also true for us today. We may not have the crowns and the kingdoms that Belshazzar did, but every one of us in this room is beholden to boasting about something other than God. 
Because as human beings, we seek displays of power, we seek displays of intelligence in our lives or perhaps the lives of other people. We know people we see on TV, and we make those things God. We may boast about our championship sports teams, our alma mater, a company we work for, a friend, maybe even a religion, or maybe even a church that you go to. But the hard truth is this, this morning, church, and I say it's hard because I've had to wrestle with this myself this week, is that so few of us want to expose the pride in our hearts because we're addicted to the false security and the praise that we get from it. Or at the very least, we're trying to scratch an eternal itch with something that is temporary and not of Jesus. And the truth is, guys, however wishy-washy we may be about pride in our own lives, hear me this morning, our God is not. Our God is not wishy-washy when it comes to the issue of human pride. In fact, I would use such bold words to say he hates it. He hates it. More than anything else in this world, God hates human pride. Just listen to some of these verses and let these words wash over your mind and reconstruct your definition of human pride and how God views it. Proverbs uh, 6, 16 through 17 says this, there are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. And the very first thing that he mentions that he hates is haughty eyes. Psalms 101.5, David speaks for God and says, the man of haughty eyes, of haughty looks and arrogant heart, I will not endure. And Proverbs 16.5 says this, everyone who is arrogant is an abomination to the Lord. And Jesus said in Luke 16.15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And in Acts 16.12.23, it says that an angel of the Lord struck Herod so that he was eaten by worms and died because when he received the praise of men, he refused to give it back to God. There is no doubt that as we look at Scripture and understand the story of God in Scripture that he hates human pride. It's an abomination in his sight. And so the question for us today as we wrestle with this is why is it that our God hates and detests human pride? We already said it's, it's tough to be around people who are prideful, but that's not the reason our God hates pride. Our God hates human pride because it's boasting in ourselves and not in the Lord. It's taking credit for ourselves for something only that God can do. It's relying in ourselves and not on God. It's the disinclination to admit that we are just mere earthen vessels. And it's the unwillingness to admit our weakness and our need for God. In other words, our human vanity, our human vanity robs God of the, just, of the praise and the glory that he deserves as the creator and the supreme master of the universe and we take that glory that is supposed to go to God and God alone, and we put it right back into our laps as his creation that has fallen and broken. I like how Pastor John Piper says it. 
He says that pride diverts our capacity for the exaltation from the galaxy of God's glory to the gutters of our puny achievements. It is a decorated dead-end street. Friends, this morning, make no mistake, God hated Belshazzar's and the Babylonians' pride. In fact, God had already prophesied years in advance through the prophet Isaiah that their pride of Babylon would be their ruin. He said in Isaiah 13, 19, that Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of all the Babylonians, will be overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah. God hated the pride of the Babylonians. And we would be unwise today if we don't recognize that God hates the pride that resides in our hearts as well. We would be unwise to say that as as Christ followers, if we didn't stop to hate the very things in ourselves that God also hates. Church this morning, our pride is not something to be stroked. Our pride is not something to be coddled. Our pride is not something to be lifted up. We should have the view of our king in mind who sees pride as a cancer to our spiritual souls that needs to be cut out and removed. And so we come back to our story, okay? We're coming back into Daniel chapter 5, back to verse 25, and Daniel is translating now this mysterious message for the prideful king Belshazzar. And as you might imagine, the news is not good. He says this, this is the message that was written, and I can't say it as well as Barb, so forgive me. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed, and you have been weighed on the balances have not measured up. Parson means divided. And your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. That's the message that God delivers. And the sum of it is this, that Belshazzar's kingdom is going to come to an end. Why? Because Belshazzar's pride blinded him from the lessons of the past that were taught to King Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar's pride led him down a path to blaspheme the most high God of the heaven and earth. And so this prophecy that is written over the head of King Belshazzar in a hand and glowing words says this for all to see, the time of your end is near, Belshazzar. The time of your end is near. And so here's the truth for us this morning, church, that we can walk away with is that were it not for the gospel of Jesus Christ, were it not for the death and resurrection of Jesus, that same inscription, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson, would be written over our lives, over our sin, and pride as well. Because these three words that are spoken in Daniel chapter 5 are not only a judgment against King Belshazzar, but if we look at them and understand properly they so accurately surmise the state of our souls apart from Jesus. They describe our soul apart from Jesus, and they are a warning to any who pridefully boast in anything other than Christ alone. Just think about this with me for a moment. Daniel says, Mene, 
Your days are numbered. And he tells the king that his reign is coming to an end. And in the same way, because of sin that has entered into the world, each and every one of us, myself included, our days are numbered because of our sin. Job chapter 14, verse 5 through 7 says this, A man's days are numbered. You know the number of months. He cannot live longer than the days you have set. And so the truth is this afternoon, this morning, church, as we look at Daniel 5, it doesn't matter what you've accomplished in this life. It does not matter what you boast about. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are all set to face eternal death. Every one of our days is numbered. And so then he goes on. He says that tekel, uh, we learn, means wade. And so Daniel tells Belshazzar that his life has been placed on the scales of God's judgment and that he has been found too light, that the balance is off, that he doesn't measure up to God's standard. And again, apart from Jesus Christ, each and every one of us all stands in that same position. Every one of us, when measured on God's standard of justice, because our God is perfect and holy, and because we are not, we find ourselves coming up short. It does not matter, again, what you accomplished in this life or where you hang your pride on, what merit you boast about. Because all of those good works, whatever they may be, no matter how good you may think you are, we have the words of Isaiah that say, all of us have become like the one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Filthy rags. All our lives have been weighed, and we come up short We come up short. And so finally, Parson means divided. And Belshazzar's kingdom was to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. The same army that stood outside the very gates of Babylon was to come in and would divide Belshazzar's kingdom. And the same uh, same is true of sin and pride that we allow to encamp around our hearts. It will divide us. It will divide our loyalties to Christ. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 6 that no one can serve two masters. We cannot serve pride and serve Christ and think that we will be able to be loyal to one or the other. It will divide us and pull us one way or the other. And so in light of all that we've seen in Daniel chapter 5 and all that we understand about God's view of human pride, if we fast forward from Daniel chapter 5, forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, we see the Apostle Paul exhorting us to boast in Christ alone. He says, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so the story of Daniel reminds each and every one of us, it's a, it's a warning sign of the folly of placing our faith in ourselves Because, church, at the end of our lives, myself included, when every one of us stand before God, before a holy and perfect God, and we give an account for our lives, if we boast in anything other than Jesus, we have nothing to boast about. We have nothing to boast about because faith in Christ alone saves us from hearing those words that God pronounced to Belshazzar, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. 
It's faith alone in Christ that saves us, and boasting in Christ leads us down a pathway of humility and righteousness so that when we stand before God, we don't hear the pronouncement of Belshazzar, but we hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. If we're going to boast, let us boast in Christ alone. So the question then becomes, if Paul is calling us in 1 Corinthians 1.31 to focus all of our boasting on the person and work of Jesus, how do we then as Christ followers go from people who are proud and self-reliant to one who exalts God and doesn't lean on our own abilities? And I would suggest to you this morning, church, that it starts all with the cross. It starts with the cross because in Galatians 6.14, Paul writes this. He says, may I never boast in in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Church, if if our pride is to be transformed, it starts with an understanding of the cross of Christ. Because the cross is the place where Jesus died for our sin, where the world sin, where our fallenness and our brokenness was paid for by the blood of Christ. He took my punishment. He took your punishment, being both fully God and fully man. He was the perfect and sinless sacrifice that is the only way in which man can be made right before God. We have no grounds to boast, church, if we stand on the ground of Calvary that is soaked with the blood of Christ for us. Because Jonathan Edwards, and I love how he says he's an American theologian, he captures this idea so perfectly. He says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Think about that for a moment. You contribute nothing. You have nothing to boast about, save for the sin that made our Savior hang on a cross. We should boast in the Lord and his love that is demonstrated for us on the cross where forgiveness and eternal life was poured out for each and every one of us. Jesus alone is worthy of all of our glory. And any boasting that we think to utter of ourselves is utterly useless when compared to the glory of the cross. And here's the thing, is that as we begin to understand the reality of the cross of Christ, it should transform the way we interact in our environments, in the places in which we find ourselves daily. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought about one of the areas or places that this is most probably easily seen is on social media. Because let's be honest, right? We can be honest. There's a whole lot of human vanity and pride happening on the interwebs these days, right? I mean, from people posting pictures of their homes to vacations to status updates on relationships to job postings, you name it, you can find all kinds of boasting out there. Now, hear me correctly. I'm not saying that we can't go out and post pictures of our vacations and our families on there. Jason may say that, but not me. (laughs) I'm telling you that today, if we're posting online, and when that becomes the sole source of our identity and our worth, then that which we are posting online is occupying a place in our heart that only belongs to Jesus. That only belongs to Jesus. And if we're not careful, what we share online, what we post on social media can become a mecca to our own successes and our own achievements, a place where we come to bow down and worship our greatness and the greatness of others. 
And so I want to challenge this this morning, church, that one small step we can begin to take to begin to move to glorifying and boasting in Christ is to glorify God both online and offline. As a follower of Jesus, the thoughts that resonate in our hearts are expressed these days in the tweets that we share, the posts that we make, the images that we share, the emails that we send, and it goes out to a watching world that wants to see, do we really say what we believe? How we represent ourselves online should bring glory to God and not exalt ourselves or cause harm to other people. And I think one of the Psalms that kind of helps to illustrate this is Psalms 19.14, which says, um, may, the wor- may these words from my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May these words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist is saying that everything we do, whether we do it in arenas at work or whether we do it online and social media, should be used to bring glory to God. And if we sit here this morning and we look and we examine the reasons for which we're posting stuff online and we find that it comes up short, that we're looking to glorify myself instead of glorifying God, then perhaps it's time to stop and reconsider. Maybe even take a break for a few days and ask God to help us see how can I use this platform, Jesus, to bring glory to you, to exalt you in all things. And so here's the thing. As we close today, I think every one of us here today can probably agree that boasting in ourselves and not boasting in Christ is something that Scripture teaches against. I think that every one of us here today could probably even recognize that we might want to take measures to to understand what's going on in our heart when we post things online. And we may even walk out of here today saying, I'm going to practice that step and only try to post things this week that bring glory to God and don't glorify myself. But the truth is, is that killing pride in our hearts, y'all, it ain't easy. Desiring to walk in humility before the Lord, that's not an easy road to walk. And daily, it's going to require of us laying down our selfish desires, laying down our selfish needs at the foot of the crosses and saying, Jesus, take these things from me. I don't want it. But here's the truth this morning, church, that there are going to be some days when we're going to succeed, and there's going to be some days that we fail. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling convicted about pride that maybe exists in your heart, I want to tell you this, welcome to the party. You're not alone, and just because you make that mistake, God is serious about our pride, but your God still loves you. Your God still loves you. And there are many days, if I'm honest, that I still wrestle with pride, that I still struggle with pride in my own life, even as a pastor, or maybe I should say especially as a pastor. Because pride can be really insidious for people who are in positions of spiritual leadership. Because unlike a lot of you, I can walk out of these doors and mask my pride with false sense of righteousness and humility. It happens all the time. Jason and I talk about it all the time. You go to a pastor's conference. I'm going to one this week. I'm sure I'll hear it. Dudes brag about the size of their ministry. They humble brag about the size of their ministry. How many people I've got following me online. What school I went to to go get my degree. It's a trap. And the truth is, church, that 
I sometimes fall into it too. Sometimes I boast about things other than Christ alone. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one here who struggles with that, right? If there's a person next to you that's nodding their head in agreement, you may want to scoot over a few seats or the lightning that's going to come down through the ceiling here in just a second. Because I think, church, if we're honest this morning, every one of us could probably identify at least one or two things that we'd say, yeah, pastor, I recognize that. There's some things in my life that I boast about other than Christ and Christ alone. So my question is this, what is it that you're boasting in Christ? What, are you, what is it that you're boasting in other than Christ? Because maybe it is like we talk, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's a job, a title, an accomplishment. But I want to challenge us this morning, church, that whatever it is that we hold in a place that is above Christ in our hearts to surrender that and lay that down at the foot of the cross, and give that back to Jesus. Don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be like King Belshazzar who allowed their pride to take them down dark and destructive paths. Rather, let's heed the words of the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians or in Galatians that God forbid that I should glory save for the cross of my Lord. If we're going to boast, church, let us boast in Christ alone. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.